All right. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Chat for God podcast, the only podcast in the world for people who are pretty much Christians, but, you know, maybe not really sure how to say that or not really sure how comfortable they are with that. Or, you know, maybe you're just a little a little overeducated, a little a little too a little too hip. Maybe your friends are a little too sophisticated. You don't know how to talk to them about why you think Christianity is cool. And you're not even sure if you're a Christian because you don't even know how to talk about this stuff. Like, I don't really know how to talk about this stuff. This is the podcast for you. Welcome back. We are today going to be talking about a book that we decided to read a little bit before today's episode. It's called The Need for Roots by Simone Vey. But first of all, hi, Marin, And how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I thought it was cool that your instinct upon opening today's session was to just open your arms up. Mm. You know, it was very pastoral of you. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I, I, I do find that an instinct. I kind of do that, I think, all the time. It just seems like a natural thing to do. You're like welcoming people, right? No, it's nice. It's warm. So how are to you feeling today? To everyone who's just listening and not and doesn't get to see us, you you should feel very welcome. <laughs> do you now? Today is Sunday. We're recording. Do you respect the Sabbath? Do do you respect the Lord's Day, or do you generally work a little bit, or how do you come down on that question? Mm, I work. Mm. I work. Mo- I work most days. I really do think I. I I relate spiritually to my work, which is actually kind of connected to to some of what we'll talk about today. But uh, I do I do work on Sundays. Do you? Do you even try I mean, to 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 work a little less? <laughs> yes. No. No. Definitely. No, that Sunday Sunday will feel permanently precious to me in a way that no other day uh, does. What right. about you? I do try to not work on Sundays. I I I do have a kind of commitment to myself to do my best to not work, but I allow myself if it's if it's really pressing and time sensitive, I will allow myself to do it. But I do really try to do nothing to to the to the best that I can afford it with all my various operations. I will definitely try. It's definitely the least productive day for me. It's the day where I basically don't hold myself to any like productivity standards or ambitions. It's more just mm-hmm. like. If there's something pressing, specifically like if I owe a person something, like if mm-hmm. uh, if if there's like an individual with an mm-hmm. email in my inbox who like needs me and something specific and direct, I will try to tend to that even on Sundays because I feel like there's a kind of pro-social excuse for that. But generally, I I reserve Sundays to at least try to do nothing. Yeah. When did you decide that, and what was the motivating idea? It was probably when I started going back to the church when I was 31 a few years ago. And honestly, it was in part motivated by overwork because, I mean, I was just really feeling and realizing working too much every day is satanic and it does real harm to you and the people around mm-hmm. you. So mm-hmm. it was it was it was a realization that the 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 Christian ethical imperative to not always be working, especially on Sundays, really does coincide with super legit specific you know, self, you know, mm. health benefits. And I was just like, I need to not work at least one day. So that's when I really tried to start doing it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So this, so respecting Sundays is one of those, uh, one of the reasons you appreciate Christianity and find some of it to be reasonable, very, very reasonable and grounded. Totally. And many, most of the world religions have some form of yeah, you know, obligation to not work on some type of schedule. So yeah, I, I respect that a lot. But like many of my ethical weaknesses, I do not stick to it as well as I, I should, but I, I aspire to. 
So for people listening or watching on YouTube, I want to just before we jump into the material that we've vaguely prepared for today, uh, mm -hmm. I want to just remind everyone, please go ahead and subscribe to the channel and click the bell if you're on YouTube. And if you listen to this on, on your phone, well, first of all, get this on your phone so you can listen to the whole podcast at your convenience, you know, when you're working out or going to the going to the office or whatever you do. And uh, if you would be so kind, I just have one very modest request, which is please, if you'd be so kind to leave a review on iTunes, uh, it really helps other people find the show, but also it is genuine feedback for us. Like we will read them and uh, we just like to learn what people are thinking. And we've uh, actually received a lot, a lot of positive feedback in the, in this week. So that was kind of nice to see. I feel like we're, we're getting some traction and that's, that's always fun. So yeah, please subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. That's my only request. Now, Marin, oh, I know that we didn't read the whole book yet. We're going to work through it. We just started. We just decided, let's take a look at this book. Let's start working our way through Simone Bay's mm -hmm. The Need for Roots. Anything jump out at you in particular that you kind of uh, found most interesting about this book? It just felt so pertinent. Say more. So I studied a lot about the book, and I've I've read some Simone Bay before, and reading her criticism of contemporary life, contemporary European life in the kind of World War II times as a reflection back on World War I and on propaganda and on Nazism and all of these things just uh, felt really profound, the similarity or commonality. And uh, it makes me very much want to, whether whether we get to talk about it all on this podcast or not, very much want to get deeper into her into her understanding and just the amount of influence that she had on other philosophers and thinkers at the time, um, I think is is pretty, pretty big, especially given how much emphasis she puts on re religion uh, relative to the more like secular kind of existentialists um, and other folks in the water at the time. Yeah, totally agree. I, I think she's just one of the most brilliant thinkers and writers of the 20th century. I've always been a huge fan of her. And for people who maybe don't know, so that just some basic background, this book, The Need for Roots, is really Simone Weil's most explicit attempt to address the question of what an ideal political community looks like or requires. She was, of course, mostly a a, a spiritual thinker and writer for the most part. A lot of her writings are very abstract and and much less explicitly political. But this book, The Need for Roots, was a result of the fact that she was commissioned by a a French group, I believe, in London. This is at the time of around World War II. Mm -hmm. I forget the year exactly. Nineteen forty three. Oh, what, say it again. Nineteen forty three. Yeah. Right. Right on. And she basically was commissioned to put to paper what her recommendations would be for essentially revivifying French culture at, or French society after the end of the war. Like what would she recommend for France to rebuild itself? What should France think about? What, what does a ideal political community look like if it has the opportunity to kind of rebuild itself from scratch in some sense, as paradoxically wars often do provide that kind of opportunity. So that was what she was tasked with. And she sat down and basically wrote out everything that she was, thought was most important for the ideal political community. So Marin, were there any particular political ideas or philosophical ideas that jumped out at you specifically? Like something she said where you're like, oh, that's that's totally lit. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I think the thing that stands out to me personally the most is how important community is 
and the idea of rootedness. I mean, it's, it's the the title kind of captures it, but uh, community as a place where much of our values are realized and uh, the instability that comes from losing that sense of culture. And she, she refers to it specifically as a thing that exists in time in a way I find very interesting, um, a, a, a sense of presence in a community, in a collectivity, in a way of behaving and engaging in that group that honors the past and, and has some vision for where it's going. Um, that felt to me consistent with a lot of our modern rails against liberalism and, um, or, or, or questions about whether our individuality and, uh, and like super pro-capitalistic like ways of operating are, are serving our souls as people. Right. What's kind of interesting about what you just said relating to capitalism is that she really sort of dodges the left and the right in a way in, in, mm -hmm. in her perspective. Like it doesn't really uh, map easily onto a kind of left-wing anti-capitalism or a kind of right-wing like pro-business libertarian capitalism. She, yeah, because she, she basically, I mean, I think this is always what great thinkers do is they have this kind of vision of the truth. And when you pursue that and articulate that kind of radically and incisively enough, you have a way of really just, yeah, sort of going off the grid of the left-right totally. spectrum, if you will. Um, so yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting because she's not, she's definitely, you know, for people who don't know much about her, she definitely was in the kind of radical left milieu of, of, you know, 20th century, uh, French intellectual life for sure. She was, you know, kind of an anarchist really. And is, is how I would generally think of her, yeah. uh, but very sympathetic to the working class, very much a kind of, I mean, she was a revolutionary too, for what it's worth. I mean, she believed very much as most sophisticated uh, French intellectuals at the time believed in the the necessity and the the imminence of a uh, communist revolution. So she was, you know, a, a on, on some level, a committed kind of left wing revolutionary, but she never really like played with party lines. She never really, you know, mm -hmm. uh, submitted to any external doctrines, really. And so that's really interesting. But when you look at the text, like one of the things that jumped out to me was that, you know, she's she's cool with like hierarchy, for instance. You know, she she, mm -hmm. she has a, a subsection on on the necessity of hierarchy and a kind of legitimate difference in in things like honor and nobility. Like some people, yeah. you know, some people uh, can achieve things that are more noble than other people. And she talks about the necessity for recognizing this and, and encoding this socially. And today that's like a very non left wing thing to say, like you're today the, mm -hmm. to be like a a good kind of radical leftist, you, you really can't say anything about a legitimate uh, hierarchy of, of people having objectively different levels of, 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 of nobility and their accomplishments. So mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting how it there, there's interesting ideas in there. If you're coming today from the left wing perspective, but also if you're coming from a right wing perspective. Yeah, no, I totally agree. She seems leftist only circumstantially. She cares very much about people's material condition and I think has a deep sense of needing to require a, a healthy society, provide for someone's basic basic need. Um, and insofar as that is leftist or, or, or something, she seems to have uh, hung out with the left. <laughs> but I agree her, her points about inequality as being a natural part of social structures and the necessity of hierarchy um, also feel really important. One bit that I pulled out that I thought was fascinating was in the section on freedom of opinion, 
she talks about, well, first of all, she says the first line in that subsection is that freedom of opinion and freedom of association are usually classed together. That is a mistake. I thought that was kind of interesting and weird. She, she basically doesn't care so much about freedom of association. Uh, so she doesn't think that that's a, a true need. So I guess that means in her view, it's not unthinkable that there could be pretty severe rules and restrictions about like who is allowed to uh, be around who physically or something like that. But freedom of opinion, she classifies as uh, basically one of the most essential needs from a spiritual perspective. I thought that was really cool. And I, I completely agree with that. What she says is that unlimited freedom of expression for every sort of opinion without the least restriction or reserve is an absolute need on the part of the intelligence. It follows from this that it is a need of the soul. For when the intelligence is ill at ease, the whole soul is sick. So I thought that was fire. I was like so on board with that because she's basically saying, well, first of all, she's a free speech absolutist. So literally every single thing needs to be thinkable. And you have to allow yourself to do that because if you don't, then you're you're crippling your intelligence and to crippling your intelligence uh, mm -hmm. will inevitably make your soul fundamentally sick. And I like that a lot because nowadays, you know, there's all these debates about free speech and what should you, what should you be allowed to think or say? And it's always understood today as this vulgar, this vulgar kind of like political thing, you know, and she's saying like, no, actually it's, it's an absolute requirement of the human soul. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to be able to think and say anything. And I, I love that. From, I, I love hearing that and understanding that from a more cultivated spiritual perspective, because I don't necessarily, I feel that like, I totally think she's, think she's right. And I've always kind of sensed that, but I've definitely never been able to personally think it in terms of spirituality and 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 make that kind of argument compellingly from a you know Christian perspective, which I think is badass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I hear that. I think one of the things that felt very interesting about the way that she relates to speech, and actually the way that she relates to power and hierarchy in general, is that she does put people in greater positions of power on a kind of sliding scale, in that she expects them to be held to a higher standard, a higher kind of moral standard as, as a human being. And she talks specifically about the media, for example, and its deep sense of responsibility to say things which are true. And everything underlying what, what you're talking about, Simone seems to um, really put the passion for truth at the center of kind of curing the sickness of contemporary civilization and a real a real earnest dogged dogged pursuit of it but again yeah. that that means that she she holds those people in positions of power um who have the p potential to propagandize who have the potential to distort in in really in really serious um she she doesn't mind that they exist you know she thinks it's natural that p people in positions of power would exist but she really does hold them to account in a, in a bigger way i think than we do now yeah, I, I totally noticed that also. And I agree that's super compelling. Like basically she seems to think that people in positions of power where their opinions or their writings or their words have disproportionate influence on other people's perception of things, that if those people in power betray the truth in some kind of significant way, that that should be treated as Severe. an extremely serious crime to a mm -hmm. degree that we don't fully appreciate. Like nowadays in our culture, it's kind of like, we're so uh, accustomed now to people in the media pretty much telling all kinds of little lies or fibs or exaggerations. Yeah. And we just see that as you know par for the course nowadays. But from her perspective, she says that the need of truth is more sacred than any other need. 
that's pretty that's pretty that's pretty deep and so therefore for her it follows that people with power who betray that that should be that should be taken very very seriously probably they should be put in jail i don't know does she say do you remember did you what does she say about what exactly she thinks should be done did, did, is she specific or I, i'm not sure that i caught it mm, she it, it comes up littered about i th- i don't know that she was incredibly prescriptive if if she was i didn't i didn't grab that piece but i i think that this point is really important that she doesn't mind hierarchy she actually thinks that hierarchy and inequality exist in societies and that that's that's part of how 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 humans function but and that's kind of a right a right-wing idea today right but on the right today there seems to be this justification of power qua power or something like competency is in fact about your ability to navigate power. It's not about a respect for truth. Donald Trump obviously being the the most egregious <laughs> example. Um, but we we justify the way that people behave based on their ability to fool people at some level to to uh, ingratiate themselves, and that breakdown in our contemporary society I don't think is spoken about enough, especially when we think about Twitter and social media and the lack of editorialization and just the media in general and what they should be responsible to saying or not. I think it, it could really be spoken about more. Like what, what political party holds this, you know, holds both of these ideas at once. I really like what you just said about how we almost positively value people's ability to deceive others. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. if you are actually bad at hiding certain things, that's seen as a personality flaw. You know, people are kind of, they don't want to work with you. You're, you're seen as naive or immature or, you know, a bit, you know, politically incalculable in a way that's, that's problematic and hard to manage. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right in a very perverse way that I think has been very normalized to the degree that it's, it's kind of unconscious now at this point that generally when we're meeting new people and moving about the world, especially if you're educated and, you know, ambitious and, and moving in, circles of of people with a bit of power and looking to get more power in any way whatsoever we do generally subconsciously prize the ability to subtly deceive and paper over certain things that that's, mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's kind of fascinating way that you 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 put that and i think that is one way to understand the, kind of the why kind of mainstream media culture and pretty much everyone who's like super famous and influential are often maybe not all of them but so many of them are essentially with their entire name and and personality pushing perceptions that are essentially like harmful or or biased and biased to a degree that is that is that is false and has a net effect on listeners of being uh you know pushing them away from the truth giving them like a less truthful attitude and really if you if you try to just zero in on the truth and nothing else yeah you're seen as kind of like a a a buffoon basically because mm-hmm. that's naive and it's immature mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's political it's always going to be politically problematic so people in power generally are kind of like oh i don't know about this person uh, yeah. but that's i think very much the christian imperative i mean what do you think yeah. about that like how do you, because that's kind of what christ represents is like this kind of radical almost naive i'm just going to say what's true very aggressively and if they try to kill me whatever that's that's kind of part of the that's part of the part of what it re- is required how do you process that for yourself <laughs> well one of the things I am led to here is she she cares about the absolute, right? She has this kind of Greek absolutist tradition, you know, uh, that that she's really motivated by, and it's hard to justify 
the absolute, it's hard to justify God or submission to any like absolute ideal because it it seems so away from reality. Right. And the and the kind of pragmatic thing to do instead is to say that the thing that matters is not absolute truth. The thing that matters is usefulness on the ground. And I think in a world where there is no absolute idea or ideal to hold yourself accountable to, you can justify the more pragmatic and immediate engagement power for its own sake. And that is essentially the thing that is lost in a world that is not religious or in a world that is unwilling to succumb to an idea of the absolute or who, which sees which sees any any religious idea or any idea of an absolute as dangerous, which I think is actually what, what we live in today, right? The Sam Harris's of the world are genuinely against any notion that an absolute could exist and be important to us. Yeah, that's really well put also. I mean, how do you process this personally? Like, do you, because I am, I'm an absolutist, I think pretty naturally. Like, I think I genuinely, I'm like, there is, a, there is a truth. <laughs> you don't say, Justin. <laughs> well, I'm like, in my mind, the way I, I, I move around the world just organically, personally, is there is a real truth. It can be somewhat known by human beings progressively through hard work of, you know, research and thinking and reflection, honestly. And, but may probably you never get, you never get there fully. You never really grasp the ultimate absolute truth, but it definitely is out there and you definitely can orient, orient yourself to it and pursue it. And really the only person or the only entity that can fully comprehend the absolute truth would be God himself. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like pursuing the truth, absolutely pursuing that absolute truth that God kind of represents or only God fully comprehends is if you just do that, every other question about how to live kind of comes secondary and sorts itself out. So to me, it's like, if I think something is true, no one or anything is going to convince me to like, not think that basically. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's hard, but it is hard because that's where we as, you know, kind of, uh, Christian people. And I know you don't really know how you even identify. So I don't want to put words, words in your mouth, but that's basically okay. people who are interested in Christianity and, lean towards it who are in kind of educated sophisticated metropolitan circles it's like really really hard to just simply speak honestly about what you think is actually true and to live and 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 behave accordingly simply because when you when you do that it kind of requires you to occasionally say things that are very low status basically that's the problem of christianity and that's always been the problem of christianity is it's an absolute kind of pursuit of the truth and requires this kind of commitment. But then when it comes down to it, it's always kind of seen as dumb or, or corny or, or, or irrational or superstitious. And so then we hide that we hide those parts. So we're not actually living in absolute accordance. We don't actually believe in the absolute if we're not like mm -hmm. fully, you know, living that out. But I don't know how to I don't I have no idea how to think about that. I'm curious, like how you process that in your own mind. Yeah, I might be swimming into territory that's just hard, to, hard to talk about in a way that makes sense to anyone other than myself. But I think that this idea of the absolute, we've, we've spoken a little bit about God as a, uh, as a Staltian thing, like a thing we transfer onto and which holds our sense of what the ideal is, our sense of what the good is 
and that it being God as opposed to just there not being a God is sort of a way of objectifying in an object, like at, at a human reasonable level, what it means to be good and to give ourselves a thing which we can choose to submit to, which is sufficiently greater than the circumstance of our daily lives, such that we feel compelled to make sacrifices that seem like they're against our own interests at, at, at some period of time. And I think that that if, if humans do have natural inclinations towards uh, reasoning at object levels, needing, needing to make think, sense of things in that way, I think the, the pragmatic thing to do and the reasonable thing to do would be to accept that and to be willing to submit to that. And it seems like, on the other hand, we have the kind of scientific cosmopolitan way of doing things where we're trying to be greater than human, right? We're trying to pretend that we don't actually reason that way. We reason in these objective, perfectly sensical ways about everything all at once. But it, I, I, I think it's just simply untrue for, for most people. And so if we don't let ourselves actively work on that object level idea of the absolute or, or of goodness or of truth or, or what it is that embodies that thing in the form of a god or whatever the word might be, we just we just end up being wishy all the time and we become compelled to things and we rationalize our behavior and like we have no practice of of submission to our own ideal that guides us in our in our day-to-day -day lives thus we are uprooted like simone says totally yeah i really like that concept or that word of uprootedness which she makes a lot out of that's definitely me <laughs> like all of my friends totally yeah, no, yeah. it's it's heavy stuff. One thing that she says that I really resonated with, we talked a little bit, we've, we've spoken a bit about beauty. I'm very obsessed with the, the idea of beauty. It's of of goodness and truth and beauty. For some reason, beauty for yeah. me has become like the material grounded thing. And she, she talks about how the greatest thing that science could study is beauty. And that is that is the thing which she wish we spent our, our time on. And I wish there were more people advocating for that idea totally totally i i so beauty in our lives has put it this like very to, to your point of what is low status i think we relate today to the idea of what is beautiful as being as low status as possible i think truth the idea of truth by some by some concept is is actually seen as being quite high status but truth truth which is grokkable and experience experienceable to us i think is is much more in the realm of beauty like beauty is an experiential ph phenomenon um and i really value that yeah that's that's great and i completely agree with that so how do you if you were if you were you know the the president of uh of a new country how would oh, you, <laughs> how, how would you how would you uh politically instantiate the kind of ethical and spiritual obligation to to beauty oh i've no idea. <laughs> All right. Well, how about this? Do you have an answer? I want your answer. Um, cathedrals. We need way more cathedrals. That's basically what I think is. No doubt. You just have to build way more big, amazing Gothic cathedrals all over the place. There's people yeah. talk about like a new, a new, like the New Deal or the Green New Deal or like another New Deal. I think there should be a cathedral New Deal where the U.S. government should just spend like several billions of dollars to just build basically the most beautiful cathedrals that have ever been made in history, but two times bigger because we can do it. There's if we, we're, we can do it. That's like within our engineering, uh, you know, capacities. And I think that if uneducated itinerant laborers in 
you know, year 1300 could build some of the most beautiful structures mm-hmm. ever made mm-hmm. in the history of human being. Mm-hmm. Then in 2021, we can spend a good chunk of change to make similarly beautiful, but even bigger and more epic cathedrals. So that's what I, that's what I would do if I were president. A hundred percent. No, I, I resonate very much with that for, so two, two things come to mind. One, as I was reading and thinking, I thought about space, sending, sending humanity to space is one of those cathedral like projects. I think it's, it's the one which seems to satisfy like science, you know, science enough, uh, to, to still fund. And I think it's a really important project, just that idea of, of uh, really uplifting ourselves and doing something for our souls. It's, it's impractical at some, at some level. It's not justifiable, uh, but it's important. And I, I see cathedral projects as, as being similar. The, and the other thing I'll say, she talks about the importance of, of honor and how the need for honor is best satisfied when people can participate in a shared noble tradition. And hearing you talk about the people who are actually building the cathedrals, right? So many of the greatest projects of humankind have required many, many people on the ground to build. And there was a noble contribution. And I think religiosity in general and religious community gives people a model of what it means to be noble. And they can then live in ways which are worthy and meaningful and and noble in a way that today is just so inaccessible. There, There is no contemporary narrative for what it means for a normal person to live a noble life. We've really been stripped of that. The denial of death, which I was talking about last time, also really makes this case in it in a lovely way. And to be able to take people who otherwise do not have spiritually gratifying work, which is something Simone speaks of quite quite often, to be able to take those folks and to give them spiritually gratifying work, which is ennobling to them and which is ennobling to our our kind of collectivity, our our society, obviously seems like one of the biggest, most important things that could be done. Yeah, I I totally think that's quite well put, and I agree I agree with that. So there's this interesting little snippet in the book related to truth and beauty, which I found very powerful, but also somewhat somewhat perplexing. I, I would love to hear your personal kind of immediate response to it. So she says she's basically talking about the problem that. A lot of people just have, they don't have time to really surround themselves with truth and beauty. They, they have to work hard, right? They have, they work too much and they have to, you know, slave away all day just to take care of their family. And then they come home and they're too tired, right? So what do you, what do you do about this problem? How do you build a society where everyone has access to a sufficient quantity of, of truth and beauty? And her comment here is very fascinating to me. So she says, Truth lights up the soul in proportion to its purity, not in any sense to its quantity. It isn't the quantity of metal which matters, but the degree of alloy. In this respect, a little pure gold is worth a lot of pure gold. A little pure truth is worth as much as a lot of pure truth. Similarly, one perfect Greek statue contains as much beauty as two perfect Greek statues. I resonated a lot with that. I like that you brought that up in particular. I do think that there's something important about learning how to find beauty in our daily experience that superficially could say like it's the education problem, like we should teach people how to how to live. But b- before 
people were spiritually educated in in religious context. <laughs> and so they learned how to find and interact with and be made small by really small things. And when we speak about my experiences of God in some continuous way, these are about seeing a flower you know, <laughs> or like noticing the weaving in a fabric and being very compelled by it. And I think that that is some of that is d dispositional personality, you know, openness on the big five. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just the capacity to a, co a constitution which ambiently notices those things which are beautiful or true or which make you small in a moment in a way that you r really, if you can have that once a day, I think your your standard of living, your sense of meaningfulness is greatly improved. Yeah, totally. I think that people today are so obsessed with quantity just naturally because quantity is what contemporary rational science is so truly good at. We have so much command over our environment by really becoming very powerful masters of quantitative manipulations. And that is all mm -hmm. super real and good. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro technology generally, but the, the obsession with quantity, the way that we've become just mentally so accustomed to think about things quantitatively because we have so much quantitatively leveraged power over the world does really, really sadly make people forget that there are qualitative experiences in the world that do have this weird attribute of almost being infinite intrinsically. And yes. Simone Weil is so plugged into this that reading her is so refreshing and exciting on this front because you're reminded you're reminded of these these experiences. For me, you know, it's things like reading really good books or, you know, when you're reading a really good book but you're reading a really good passage of a book and it's a really good sentence in that passage and you're like mm -hmm. you everything opens up so clearly. The whole mm -hmm. everything pauses, like the whole world pauses. Everything stops and it's just pure clarity and a vast expanse of calm and there's just this inner contentedness of like everything is as it should be in some sense. Mm -hmm. And those moments, she's right. It's having 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 that for five minutes or having it for one minute kind of doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's 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 really kind of interesting. I it's really it's really exciting to think about that. Because it has a really egalitarian implication to it, yes. you know, because like rich people, yeah, can buy more Greek statues than poor people. But to, if two Greek statues doesn't give you any more uh, edification than one beautiful Greek statue, then, OK, maybe we can maybe we can get to a place where everyone can afford one beautiful Greek statue. And there's this kind of strong spiritual egalitarian implication to that, which is just so easy to forget and it's so easy to overlook. And I just love that. Yeah, no, I, and I think especially since so much of this is about an individual, they, they, every person has agency in creating these experiences of beauty and goodness for themselves. Obviously, I think if your material conditions are severely compromised, if you are genuinely stressed and exhausted, it becomes quite hard to create that space. And we see that in in every society, everywhere, including today. But it is one of the most egalitarian things possible. One of the things you're talking about about quantity earlier, the way the way that I think about this often, I mentioned my art to t art to entertainment spectrum. <laughs> I think 
we live in a society that has become so good at gratifying once for us just in a, in a tight feedback loop. Like you wanted this thing, you clicked this thing, you liked this thing, and that is the end-all be-all justification, right? Is were, were we able to get you to continue to engage down this rabbit hole is the, the end of, in and of itself. Your, your willingness to continue to engage in this is the way that we proxy whether it is good for you. When in fact, the thing which we know to be true in our physical bodies, in our relationship with our physical selves is that we have to keep some things from ourselves. We cannot just be gratified by our want in an immediate sense. It's very clear that that's not going to get us to a healthy body. And I think that this experience that we're talking about of being able to be with something that's beautiful or to be made small by something or to have a moment in reading a sentence in a book that really opens you up is, is similarly about you creating the space to have an experience of God, right? To be made small by something which is infinite or absolute or very, very large, and to also find yourself to be part of that thing, right? And that's incredibly endearing and important and not a thing that we have conversations about anymore or a thing that people know how to experience. And that's really a shame. Totally, totally. So what you're saying is we need a government program that is going to redistribute uh, perfect Greek statues, one per household. Instead of doing like a $2,000 stimulus check, give every household in America one high quality Greek statue. You know, I, I think, I think this can be done without the statues. I think the thing that's really cool about the big cathedral project is that I think that us seeing each other work in collect, you know, in a collective to achieve some great and beautiful end is a way of recognizing our shared humanity in those little individual moments that matter to us, right? It is it is quite literally putting on a pedestal the experiences which we know to be profoundly meaningful in our lives and in our daily experiences. And in that sense, I think it's important that we justify those expenses and really pursue them and call them noble as they are. Uh, but in the in the on the ground sense, I'd say cap. You know, I'd say our our, our current society has actually made statuettes of Greek naked people about as cheap as we could possibly hope for them to be. But people don't seem to be that spiritually fulfilled by that. That's a good point. And you made it, you made an interesting comment earlier in the conversation, which I thought was funny and, and very true, where you said something like, yeah, cathedrals, but on Mars. And I think that's kind of funny because today it's like, if you seriously propose in the public square, like on Twitter or blog posts or whatever, if your proposal is seriously, okay, we need a government program to do more cathedral building, or, or we should, you know, create some sort of organization to build cathedrals. That just kind of falls flat. People would sort of laugh at it for just being like, where is this coming from? This, this, this makes no sense. But if you, if you, if you wrote that same blog post, but you're like, yes. we need to build these cathedrals on Mars, then like all the tech bros are like, oh, this is awesome idea. We so need to do this. Let's totally. fund this. Let's do this. And yeah. I, I think that's kind of funny. It is. No, it is. And I'm so glad that Mars exists for that reason. You know, like there's a way to relate to a lot of people that it doesn't have to be about Mars. It doesn't have to be about the cosmos. And this is props to props to, you know, Carl Sagan and people who created this kind of beautiful fantasy mythology out of out of uh, science. I think it's absolutely marvelous uh, and and important. But yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, the Olympics 
are a great example of this. I mean, the Olympics are so endearing because it's it actually just exists for the sake of being able to kind of see someone's humanity and see them struggle and see them persevere and in greatness. I think that I think that art and beauty have just really lost their place with that. And I think that science could have played a much bigger role in helping us understand how to be small next to things, but instead out of a kind of fear of this absolute ideal in contemporary life, we've, we've sort of put that, put that down and not let ourselves like, you know, see, see, a, see an important piece of science as being the pursuit of our own smallness. Uh, it's so true. Yeah. What you're, what you're also making me think about is how on a related note, the way Christianity can sometimes be interesting or a little hip in sophisticated circles if it has some kind of weird technological spin you know so it's like if you're just a traditional christian that's sort of you're a little weird mm. you're, you're, you're kind of that's superstitious mm. that's a little dumb you're mm -hmm. just naive but if you're christian with some kind of little technological spin or you're christian and you have some kind of provocative personality cult or something like that wrapped around it then all of a sudden it can be like oh wow christianity's interesting it's 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 very very creative forward thinking and I think that's kind of fascinating. Uh, I think mm -hmm. because, you know, look, I am I am pretty fire and brimstone on a lot of things. And, and this is one of the things I'm kind of fire and brimstone on. Like, I think that basically temptation and sin is constantly, it's truly constantly trying to break in. Like, every, pretty much, especially in modern civilization, especially if you're at all successful as a person, meaning like you have some kind of platform or you're doing anything that involves money and power and it's working even to the slightest degree. Basically, if that is your life situation, you are surrounded on all sides by sinfulness, trying to trying to get its tender hooks into you and your and your life. I really do kind of experience the world that way and that is how I see things. And so I think personally, the way that you have to kind of wrap Christianity in Christianity but on the on Mars or Christianity mm -hmm. but a new mm -hmm. updated weird transhumanist. It, what's that? Transhumanist transhumanism that's right to me all of those little tweaks that you have to make to the christian idea to make it play well and to make it resonate among sophisticated people all of those are are paths of of sin and and destruction in the long run mm -hmm. I, I i really do kind of think about it that way i don't have a solution for that i don't really know like sometimes i even wonder is this podcast participating in sinful circuits that that mm -hmm. are you know more powerful than me maybe i'm guilty of it i don't know but at least i, I don't know for my part my goal is can you create cultural, can you communicate Christian ideas and try to figure out Christian ideas and, and, and pursue a Christian hunch about the truth of the world in a way that is not sinful, that is not, you know, playing into the hands of these various, you know, modern temptations and, and casuistry. What, what do you think are, I, I don't, I don't know if this resonates with you in any way. It's funny. We'll, we'll see over time, my opinion or feeling might change, but I feel very secure in this podcast, for example. I think you actually talked about how in the name of Christianity, we can become less artistic or we can become less willing to kind of pursue things that are true. And Simone, at least, really values truthfulness and, and the pursuit of that. And I think being being somewhat belligerent in saying things that we believe to be true should be part of our responsibility in our faith because it creates honesty and it creates honest communion it, it i think gives us the ability to 
glorify God as we can in our circumstance, in our contemporary realities and in our like fraught lives. And I think it's actually really interesting. I mean, we think about the Bible so much, so many of God's chosen people, right? David being the most classic example, it, that, that story did not need to be there. It is very probable that there could have been religious figures which were much more Buddha-like, for example, persistently. And those were those being th the folks that God chose. But that's just not true. And I, I think there's something really precious about the kind of Judeo-Christian uh, philosophy or history that mm. so often there are sinners, there, there are betrayers, there are, you know, there's a very realness to our, our foible and, and an ability to let God overcome those with us. Totally. Marin, do you know about these new churches, these kind of trendy, like hipstergram, uh, Instagram churches? Um, like no. there's one in San Francisco that's kind of well-known. Do you follow these? Do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I don't. No, I need, I need to know now. Yeah, there's a few. Well, well, there's a few. I'm kind of collapsing a few phenomena. One is that there's there's kind of this new school of trendy hipster, like preacher type characters and pastor type mm. characters who are like Instagram influencers. That's kind of a separate category. But uh, relatedly, there is there's one church in California. I think it's in San Francisco. I heard about it recently. I think it's called Glide and it's this like new church kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's basically attempting to be universal. It's basically trying to do a kind of, you know, modern religion without religion kind of thing. But apparently mm. it's pretty big. Like, uh, uh, you know, people like Gavin Newsom, uh, have made appearances at it, the governor of California. And mm -hmm. I think like Ben Horowitz's wife goes there sometimes. And, 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 um, I heard I heard it mentioned recently. I forget who was talking about it, but I heard someone talking about it, and I was I was laughing to myself because, well, first of all, I mean, I'm not throwing shade. I mean, and anything that people are like trying to figure out to like find spiritual truth is generally, I think, better than better than not doing that. So my hats off to them, and I don't know anything about it, so I'm not not judging. But I, it was kind of funny how I heard someone describing it because they were like, "Yeah, it's really cool and interesting. It's it's basically, you know, you can go to this church and see homeless people." in the tenderloin sitting next to, you know, Gavin Newsom and participating in the service. And it's, and it's amazing. Like that's so interesting and, and unique. And I'm just like kind of chuckling to myself. Cause it's like, yeah, that's what church always was. That's what church mm. was always supposed to be. And mm -hmm. in previous eras, that's what any healthy kind of Christian society was involved basically. And uh, the fact that it's kind of being reinvented under these like new liberal uh, sort of, you know, cosmopolitan guises. I just think it's mm -hmm. hilarious how basically traditional wisdom is, is like being rediscovered as if it's new. <laughs> and and mm. it's like, this is, this is ancient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think a lot of folks undervalue or underappreciate history, that idea of having a tradition that you're inheriting from and trying to build a new ground without Christianity is such a gigantic task or with, without a religious history is such an absolutely gigantic task. And even, even in the new religions that there are Mormonism, you know, more, which, which I mean, it, it, it took, it takes so much from the Christian tradition and then just augments it. It's very intimidating to imagine actually being able to protect what is healthy and powerful and serve, you know, really serve as, serves God. If you just start start from zero, you know, like, what do you, what do you say about the basis of your, of your faith? Uh, right. Well, I think what a lot of people believe nowadays in cosmopolitan circles is 
basically that there is a rational religion possible without God, without superstition. And it's basically just modern, technologically sophisticated progress will get us to a place where everyone gets along and everyone can share in certain universal ideals that any rational person will be able to appreciate and converge on. Mm -hmm. And personally, it sounds beautiful. I hope it's true. That'd be cool if that happens. But I just don't think rationality pans out that way. You're, mm -hmm. I, I don't think you're ever going to get that because there yeah. are always going, there are always going, rationality alone is always going to lead to certain inevitable competitive conflicts. I mean, this is basic, this is basically Rene Girard, right? And this is why I think a lot of people are really into him right now, because even if everyone in the world could have, you know, one beautiful Greek statue and all of their material resources taken care of, we always just necessarily engage in these kind of status competitions for uh, what is essentially a scarce resource. Status is is is, a, is a zero sum game. So we're always going to, with rationality with rationality alone. We will always be lapsing back into zero sum games that can always scale up to be disastrous. Whether that be you know small little conflicts all the way up to civil wars or whatever. So to me, the only the only way you really get to a deep social harmony is through a kind of faith in which everyone can have faith in the same God, maybe not even necessarily the same God. I think you can have like a kind of, I think there are prospects for a peaceful kind of pluralistic uh, mm -hmm. setup, but I don't think you're ever going to get there through the, the rational religion method, I think is deeply naive personally. Do do, yeah. do are you interested in that at all? Do you think that there, do you think that like rational cosmopolitan people are going to be able to somehow uh, evolve a a new religion that uh, is that works or something. I don't know. I'm certainly very excited for folks to try. I am looking forward to hopefully a lot more discourse about about this upcoming. I think your point about pluralism, kind of religious pluralism, d different conceptions of God which are acceptable, is really important and. I think we're we're just at the beginning of that idea at some real level. I think religion and God get immediately equated with tribalism for many cosmopolitan thinkers. The reason they don't even want to touch the absolute, the reason they don't want to touch religion or God is because of their conviction that those ideologies are just too potent and they'll push people away from each other more so than mm. they than they bring people together. But I I'm I'm not convinced that has to be true. I'm not I'm not convinced that more people have done destructive things in the name of the spiritual than the material actually. Even though mm -hmm. they may have f waved spiritual seeming banners as they as they did so. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not so sure either. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Any other interesting tidbits from no. the need for roots just to get back to the text? Was there anything that jumped out of you that you, you felt especially compelled to share with the audience or discourse upon? Yeah, I think, gosh, there was so much in here. I think one thing I wanted to bring up since we're with you in particular was some of her feelings about academic culture and mm. how it had lost its connection with the world that the Academy pursues knowledge on behalf of knowledge's usefulness for attaining status as opposed to for its sake. And 
I wonder if you have ideas about how we've gotten there, if it's possible to, if it's possible to have some, some truthful, I guess, truth seeking space. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the problem is basically pretty simple. It's just that when you have a competition for resources, that's always going to incentivize people to become more efficient. And when you're trying to be more efficient, you're going to industrialize whatever you're doing, essentially. And so the problem with from the academic perspective, when it comes to the larger goal of truth seeking in this in this deeper way, is that this deeper kind of true truth seeking where you're really looking for the absolute, it's very time consuming, it takes it takes a lot of patience and effort. And it's not immediately useful as as you just referred to. And so academia worked for a few centuries, because what it essentially was, was this kind of uh, insulated place where you were basically insulated from market pressures. So it's basically like if you're super smart, and you want to just read books all day, then you can basically uh, enter this little group where you don't make a ton of money, uh, but you can kind of have freedom to just read books, right? And of course, for people who don't know this, if it's not obvious, this whole kind of academic ancient tradition comes up with the church, basically. So the earlier version of the contemporary professor is like the religious scribe and priests or whatever. Uh, people who in you know uh, religious traditions are spending most of their time just reading traditional books, re reading religious books and, you know, transcribing things, translating things, and basically managing the handing down of knowledge. All of that in the Western, in Western civilization, for most of our history, that was done through essentially religious and, and, and in particular Christian institutions by, uh, yeah, priests and, and scribes and these types of people in one way or another, more or less under, under the authority and under the support of the church. So, that made sense in a kind of era before technological acceleration really heats up the competition for resources in all domains. So that's how I think about it anyway. So the church and then later, you know, uh, early modern society could have these institutions where they basically say, okay, this is going to be uh, protected from market pressures. And for the really bookish people who just want to think about ideas and try to try to uh, hand down knowledge to future generations, we can just basically subsidize them in this little box where we'll give them a decent life and they'll just work on books and stuff like that. That's in a cartoonish way. That's essentially the underlying kind of traditional uh, basis of what, of what academia is in some sense. And that all changes with technological acceleration, really, because with technological acceleration, what happens in, in my personal, I guess, meta-narrative here is that the basically everything becomes more liquid and all resources become way more uh, competitive, right? So if you want to get into this nice, cushy, insulated space where you get to just read books and you don't have to, you know, compete on the open market, you just basically get subsidies to read books and write books, even that became subject to competition and that accelerated. And that's where things really go wrong because nowadays, if you want to be a professor, if you want to even just have the right to break into this space, to get that, you know, supposedly kind of insulated uh, space as an academic, well, guess what you have to do? You have to you have to basically industrialize 
knowledge production as aggressively as possible because you know you have to publish as many papers as you can before you publish your phd to have a chance of getting the job offer and then to get the tenure you have to publish as many papers as you can after you get the job offer and so on and so that's that's like the longer term explanation or that that's the longer term model that that i subscribe to and that's why at the end of the day you're you just can't really afford to do this orientation towards the absolute that that Simone Weil describes in academia. It's just like economically not viable at all. And yeah, that's how I see it. So I don't see any going back from that. I don't see any any way to save that. I think the only possibility is to carve out for yourself these times and spaces where you pursue the absolute in a disinterested way. And to do that, you have to basically earn your own resources somewhere else to pay for yourself to have this time and space where you can pursue the absolute truth in a disinterested way that doesn't require it to be like profitable. Because as soon as you need it to be profitable, you're going to be in the thick of hyper-efficient, industrialized, you know, knowledge production, which just forecloses the absolute. Mm-hmm. How do you see it? <laughs> Sorry, that's the, the, the academic. No, no, no. Academic history and where where we've gotten to now. Yeah, we're just, I'm curious, how do you think about, because, you know, you're in a somewhat different position, you're in a more, you know, uh, you know, I come from an academic background, that's kind of my Mm -hmm. identity and my norms and my own attitudes and assumptions are very much in this kind of academic milieu. Yours are more in tech, in venture capital, in these types of more commercial, economically inclined spaces and milieus. So I'm just curious how you think about and 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 your um your your organization interact is very much dedicated from what i understand to the creation of spaces and times where mm-hmm. something much deeper can be can be accessed in these otherwise quite competitive and often alienated spaces so i'm just curious you must have some interesting ideas or or personal hunches about what is required to carve out sustainable spaces of of you know pursuing the absolute in, in the contemporary kind of economy and, and society. I'm just curious how you think about trying to do that. Yeah. Well, number one, I don't know anywhere near as much about the history of the academy as you do. I have gotten interested enough to read at least many, many books on the subject and would really love to be able to spitball that. And in particular to this question of who studies God, how have we studied God in time and what has intellectual culture's relationship to that inquiry been and what what might our conceptions of what god is have changed or suffered in its becoming lowbrow or 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 kind of losing and sliding in status and what shame might that be for our culture (laughs) as a as a global our humanity right at some at some real level if as simone tries to advocate for if science isn't studying beauty or if if we don't have a real centrality to this this question of what is the absolute and what role should that idea have in our in our lives and how much meaningfulness does it bring to us we're we're going to really miss out on a lot that could that we have good reason to believe does improve people's standard of, standards of living and should be seen as potentially a, a sign of progress, hu- human progress, spiritual progress. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting line of line of question that we should consider more. As far as how to create the spaces for it, I do believe pretty strongly in collective action, democracies in communities. And I think at least in Interact's case, I care a lot about 
finding ways to have a discourse at the level of the community itself so that we can resource allocate against what we think is meaningful and important. And I'm, I'm biased towards valuing projects that are non-instrumental, that are for, for their own sake. And I think beauty, again, is, is one of those such things, which is really for this, for its own sake. And so in interact spaces in the way that we engage in our culture, there's much more of that than you can find in most of the commercial world. But I'll say we're in a very lucky position because our proximity to capital, our proximity to resource lets us probably uh, damper some of what could otherwise be very competitively intense pressures, which could force us to be more instrumental. You know, I just, you made me think of a question for you. Are there any explicitly Christian venture capital funds? Hmm. I don't think so. That would be cool. I wonder why there isn't. Uh, it would be kind of interesting, right? Like basically just get capital together, say, you know, we're going to try to be profitable and have a positive ROI, but we're only going to fund explicitly kind of like Christian mission-based projects. I feel like that'd be, that'd be super interesting. <laughs> there might be some social impact ventures that are connected connected to that, that, you know, things that have five, you know, 501c3 status or other, other kind of tax statuses that aren't really re quote real venture firms in the for-profit sense. Right. Maybe chat for God will build its own fund. Uh, yo, uh, Joel Austin, if you're out there listening to this, I know you're listening to this. Hit me up, bro. We should, we'll we fund should anything that will increase people's relationships with God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're now at an hour. So everyone who's watching on YouTube, thanks for hanging out. And please just subscribe if you haven't already and click the bell. So you get a notification the next time we go live and you can come hang out with us. And yeah, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. So you can listen at your convenience on your phone. And if you do subscribe to the podcast or either way, please just go and leave a review on iTunes. That's our modest little ask of you really helps other people find the show and we genuinely love hearing what you think so yeah i put a link in the show notes to the to the itunes listing just leave a review for us we'd appreciate it marin thank you so much this was fun and let's keep reading this book i think we both liked it yeah. so uh why don't we keep reading it at our convenience and maybe we'll make it a something that we can return to uh here and there in in future conversations yeah and if y'all who who've listened have questions that you'd like to 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 hear us talk about about the book in particular, I, I would love to know what they are. Yeah, totally. Let us know. I guess probably the easiest way to do that at the current moment is you can DM me on Twitter or leave a reply on one of my tweets. I'm J-M-R-P-H-Y, J Murphy with no U. And uh, yeah, so, or Marin too. I don't know if she feels like plugging her own stuff or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll let you plug me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to like, can... I'm trying to like take the- uh... Where's my, I used to get banners. I used to get at Marin Nelson banners and- Oh yeah, know, that's like, right. We you're are. pulling away. I mean- Right. Well, no, we're experimenting. Totally we're experimenting with the visual design. By the way, yeah, folks, let us know. Uh, what do you think of our of our <laughs> our little overlay here? We were, we were discussing and analyzing it before we started. I just whipped this up this morning, so uh, we're open to all all feedback. But I was trying to take. I'll take the heat for Marin. If you, if you have any nasty things to say, you can uh, send your tweets to me. Let's spare Marin. Yeah, send she's, me she's, the nice ones. Yeah, Marin and is new to this podcast and podcasting in go. general, so send feedback to me. I'll send the nice stuff to Marin and uh, the, the mean stuff I'll just spare her from. I have thick, I have very thick skin and I'm used to it. So it's all good. All right, Marin. Thanks for hanging out. As always, this was fun. Talk to you later. Bye, Marin. Bye, everybody.